You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, Andrew and I will be discussing an essay I just penned criticizing the ecological Marxist theory of John Bellamy Foster and Brett Clark, the so-called theory of the metabolic rift. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. It's hosted by MHI. The views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about the metabolic rift theory of John Bellamy Foster. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. So today is Tuesday, April 26th, and we're going to be talking about Ukraine again. And we're going to be talking about some more of the left responses to the war in Ukraine. Uh, There's a piece out April 14th by so-called Marxist economist Richard Wolff called The Role of Capitalism in the War in Ukraine that was published in Counterpunch. And then it was put on uh, Robert Scheer's uh, blog, uh, Scheer Post. I mean, the first thing I should just say to get it out of the way, and then we won't have to talk about it more, is that I have a difficult time reading Rick Wolf because everything feels like it's written for a fifth grade audience. There's a certain kind of uh, talking down to people that is just part of his style that really gets under my skin. It gets under a lot of people's skins. Uh, you know, I read like somebody had assigned one of his recent books to a class. I think it was like a, you know an evening class, so it was an adult education college class, and people were just offended by his tone and, and condescending manner, you know, oversimplifying everything, and it's not just you. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people bristle at being spoken down to as if they're children who don't know anything about history or politics. And it's not just Wolf. It, frankly, it's an old Communist Party kind of style goes back to like the 1930s maybe before uh, i'm always reminded of i saw i saw a documentary uh, it was maybe on bob dylan it was maybe about the music of the, the 60s and you had pete seeger they interviewed pete seeger and he was trying to explain the lyrics of the song only a pawn in their game and he's like pawn and he's telling us like this is about an analogy to chess and it's just like yep yep pete we know you don't have to do, do that old cp thing like the rest of us are like idiots yeah <laughs> i'll never forget that like oh it was just like so so much the same kind of thing yeah yeah but then he actually does have some points we wanted to address so here's a, a sentence from the article that maybe sums up his position on ukraine ukraine per se is not the issue it is tragically a war-ravaged pawn in a much larger conflict. Only a pawn in their game. Yeah. That's an analogy to chess. I think this is campism hits the fan. Um, I think that the pro-Putinites are ha- having a lot of trouble getting, obviously, resistance within their own milieu. And it's not just Wolf. It's uh, Chomsky and other people who would make the main enemy of everything in the United States always all the time 24 7 people are like well what about russia (laughs) you know who's attacking ukraine so when wolf says ukraine per se is not the issue we got to ask what's he responding to he's responding to somebody who 
probably many people who want to focus on the Russian invasion and condemn it and to say, how can we help the Ukrainians in their fight for national self-determination? How can we stop this bloodshed, the rape, the massacres, the, the forced resettlement of people? In response to that, the answer is Ukraine per se is not the issue. Let's, let's talk about what I care about here. You know? You're right. And what he cares about is to let people know that there's always war in capitalism. And so we're not going to solve this problem within a capitalist society. And that this is a proxy war between two large powers. Yeah. And he also says toward the end, perhaps the greatest tragedy lies in not recognizing the responsibility of the capitalist system with its markets of competing enterprises, uh, blah, blah, blah. That's the real tragedy. Yeah. He begins with, Ukraine is a tragically a war-ravaged pawn. Meanwhile, the tragedy goes beyond Ukraine's suffering. Perhaps the greatest tragedy lies in not recognizing what I want to tell you. Yeah. Talk about being full of oneself. Yeah. That's a greater tragedy than the, the mass killings, the rapes, the forced evacuation of people, the, the attempt to destroy the Ukrainian people and take over their country. Not recognizing the responsibility of the capitalist system with its markets of competing enterprises run dominated by the minorities we call employers. That's a greater tragedy than what's happening on the ground in Ukraine right now. I mean, come on. Yeah, and there's also a very strong argument for a, a simplistic, deterministic way of viewing this conflict in Rick Wolf's piece, right? He's saying that um, this conflict was bound to happen. It's the result of these glacial inter-imperialist rivalries, and it would happen regardless of who the leaders are. Um, and it seems like, for one, that's a very reductionist and naive way of presenting the issue, as if the particular political situations in various countries doesn't matter at all. Like the subjective reality of like Putin's perspective on this war doesn't matter at all. Like it just seems like there's, you, you can't really explain all these details of how, uh, how this thing shook out without looking at those kind of things. If you're just stuck in this deterministic framework, but it also is very dangerous to just say things are inevitable and can't be changed. Yeah, it's it's yeah. I mean, on the face of it, it's silly. It's got it's got a purpose. The, the the purpose is don't be criticizing and obsessing over this. It's inevitable. It's that's the same line of inevitability that we criticize. Uh, MHI criticizes in our editorial where whoever it was said, "Oh well, Putin's invasion was uh, inevitable." Well, there's nothing inevitable about this. First of all, so much of the, even the, the ruling people, and to the extent anybody's got any power besides Putin in Russia, a lot of opposition to that. The main thing, however, is the continued rule of Putin is not inevitable. Putin's rise to power was not inevitable. The, the main challenger, you know, has called for an end to the war. Volny and mass demonstrations against the war. They've, Putin regime has managed to kind of crush that for the moment, and, and people have left the country and, uh, who, you know, are oppositionists and so forth in, in large numbers. But no, there's, there's no inevitability here. And for anybody who calls themselves a, a socialist to be using this kind of inevitability line is like really something. I mean, it's, it's just like the, the people say, well, you can't do anything about it. There is no alternative. That's human nature. It's the same kind of thinking. He says the same history and confrontation would prevail upon their successors. What about if we had a democratic regime 
instead of the current regime in, in, in Moscow. And Putin's screwing things up so badly, that's not out of the realm of possibility. They're, they're all going to go down this road. I understand that there's still geopolitical strategic interests and so forth that are not going to make Russia forever and all time willingly subordinate to the United States. But there's a far cry from saying that to saying you're going to go and try to obliterate the Ukrainian nation in the most bloody way possible. Yeah, and this sort of bogus reductionism really takes the attention away from Putin, takes the blame away from Putin in many ways. I mean, in the press, there's a lot of discussion of the subjective reality that Putin lives in, right? He's an autocrat who's isolated himself from criticism and surrounded by psychophants and, uh, you know, probably just kills anyone who disagrees with him. And so he's, um, in some ways, not aware of all the details of the geopolitical situation that he's in and acting according to his own understanding of reality, which doesn't necessarily match other people's reality. And that's part of the reason that the war is going so badly for Russia is that they didn't know what they were getting into, or Putin didn't know what he was getting into. So so part of the structural reality of the situation is that the political balance of power in Russia is such that the leader doesn't know what's going on all, fully. It's very clear that even within the, the ruling group, military and governmental group in, in, in Russia, it's very clear that there has been a lot of resistance, pushback. People are like, we, we shouldn't be doing this. It looks, it looks like it is the project of one person and some advisors who are not the majority. It's so far from being an inevitable outcome based on geopolitics and the laws of capitalism that you have to say, why is it happening? Because there, there are many things that, that, that could be done short of that could still be uh, in the interest of the current ruling class in, in Russia right now. It's certainly plunging into a war that you're not prepared to win and that you're blundering at every moment and you're pissing off a whole lot of the world, and I'm not talking about the capitalist countries, I'm talking about the masses of people. These are not smart moves. So you have to, when people make such stupid mistakes, you have to say, why are they making stupid mistakes? That, that, that needs explanation. You can't say stupid mistakes are inevitable. But I want to say that, I mean, basically, I, you, when you said, looks like he's trying to take our attention away from Putin and what Putin is doing, I think the entire piece is written that way. I mean, the first half of it is just like very abstract and boring and meant to lull us into a sense of God, just get, so, oh so, that, God, so that we yeah. no longer have Jeez. in our mind Russia, its invasion, its slaughter. And by two thirds of the way through, he goes, oh, well, Ukraine per se is not the issue. Well, yeah, you've just made it not the issue by, I think he was intentionally trying to bore us to, to death here. And by the way, I mean, Rick Wolf can be focused, precise in his condemnations when he wants to be. Uh, the fact is he has been colluding with the Putin regime for a very long time. You know, he's a, he's, he's a writer for RT. And he appears on Chris Hedges, you know, RT program and so forth. So, you know, it's not like he's some neutral observer, disinterested, looking at this from afar. Well, that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, our discussion of the ecological socialism of John Bellamy Foster and Brett Clark. 
Listeners may be familiar with the eco-socialism of John Bellamy Foster, who is one of the leading intellectuals of the Monthly Review School. His most recent book on ecology is called The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism, and the Ecological Rift. It's by John Bellamy Foster and Brett Clark. And I have just penned a critique of that book. It is called A Metabolic Mess, a Critique of Foster and Clark's The Robbery of Nature. And you can find that in With Sober Senses, the online publication of Marxist Humanist Initiative. We will link to that in the podcast description, and we'll be discussing my critique in this main segment today. So, Brendan, in the publicity that Foster and Clark put out for their book, they say that in their environmental critique of capitalism, they are, quote, working within the historical tradition of Marx, as well as the German chemist uh, von Liebig, and that they, quote, adopt a materialist and dialectical approach. And so you were recently the principal author of a uh, Marxist environmental critique of capitalism, MHI's recent uh, perspective on capitalism and the ecological crisis. So you must have really loved the Foster and Clark book, right? (laughs) Well, the short version is that I thought their book was awful. And the more I worked on this review of their book and dug into the details even more, my suspicions of how awful it was were just deepened. The book is theoretically really problematic. A lot of the ideas are contradictory and don't really explain the world clearly at all. They work at sort of levels of abstraction that are so vague that they say everything and nothing at the same time. The theory itself about the relationship between capitalism and the environment is is not internally coherent. It's a total mess. They also completely misrepresent Marx over and over again in their book. They claim to be working in the tradition of Marx, but their citations they use to back up their claim of what they call Marx's mature ecological critique don't support their claims about what Marx said at all. I mean, they're like fraudulent citations. They're not even like, you know, I could see why you could make this case for this interpretation. They're completely like fabricated citations that have no bearing on what they claim that Marx is saying. So I think the whole thing is like an embarrassment. Uh, it has does nothing at all helpful for advancing a critique of capitalism and the environment. Wow, that's uh, glowing praise coming from <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, okay, but in any case, uh, you've made your case here in a nutshell, and now we got to, I guess, yeah, we'll get into the break details. it down and, yeah. and substantiate. But before we, we get into that. I kind of guessed that you picked up the book knowing you weren't going to really like it. But what? why did you decide to write about the, the Foster and Clark book? What, what led you to review it? Well, I know that there's a lot of buzz about the work that John Bellamy Foster has done on in ecological questions in the past. I knew that he has this, this notion of metabolic rift that he claims is Marx's idea. And that people have asked me, have they've asked MHI, they've asked us, like, really, what's the relationship of our critique to what they're saying? So I knew his stuff was out there, but I hadn't checked it out, and I wanted to see for myself. I, I was suspicious, because ha- having read other things by Bellamy Foster and the Monthly Review School, you know, I, I'm fairly suspicious of what they're writing, but I'm not. Honestly, I wasn't sure, picking up the book, if I would find something to disagree with or not. I thought maybe on this topic that 
maybe gone the relationship of capitalism to destroying the environment, I thought maybe this would be kind of a slam dunk thing and not that hard to pull off. So I thought, let's see what, what he has to say. So I was suspicious, but I, you know, I read it with an open mind. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. All these people say, oh, well, the, the environmental crisis has to do with capitalism. And, you know, in the, the MHI environmental statement, there's a discussion of couple of different kinds of arguments along that line and then you get this different one with Foster and Clark it's not a slam dunk it's not easy for people because they they have such barren and incorrect understandings of what capitalism really is uh, but we'll, we'll get into that yeah and that's and that's when I say I was suspicious oh picking up the book that's what I was suspicious about because I know that when it comes to explaining capitalism the monthly review school going all the way back to Baran and Sweezy, they've jettisoned a lot of Marx's categories in, in order to erect a alternative explanation of how capitalism works that is very different than Marx's. So I was already suspicious that one, things they claim were Marxist were not going to be really Marxist ideas, but monthly review ideas. And two, suspicious as to whether they could successfully explain the phenomena of ecological crisis within their monthly review framework. So one of the, the, the things that you're trying to do in your review essay is to summarize the theory that they put forward before you uh, provide a criticism, but you indicate that you find it difficult to summarize their theory. Why? What, what's the problem? Yeah, well, they have a, a tendency in their writing. When I say they... I'm talking about John Bellamy Foster. I'm talking about Fred Magdoff. I'm, you know, I'm talking about that whole milieu. Even David Harvey was sort of like a monthly review adjacent thinker. They all have a similar way of obscuring the logical thread of the argument so that simple sort of like the statements of here's a claim, this claim leads to this other claim, this claim then leads to this, I can test this against like empirical reality, thusly see this explains this. It, th they don't write in that kind of way. They write in a very, um, to me, confusing way where uh, a lot of the substantive theoretical argument is like buried beneath a flood of descriptive material. And they also tend to confuse like explaining something um, with labeling things. So there's a certain fetish for like, creating abstract labels and then just like showing you all the things that can fit within that label as if that explains like like the inner movement of society as if they've uh, uh, explained something profound and uh, essential about the nature of capitalist society and so that's something i go into later in the paper this difference between like labeling something or actually identifying the, the inner motion of something explanation versus characterization i think I, I i say in the paper yeah i think those are helpful terms to to get at the uh, the distinction that, that exists and that you're you're calling attention to and when you say when you say that this goes back to baran and sweezy their book monopoly capital published in 1966 this is also in, in my mind a feature of their writing right at that point they they hurry by the theory such as it is very rapidly 
and basically they kind of give you the impression look i'm just telling you the facts the way they are and that so a, a very partial view of reality is highlighted brought to the forefront on the basis of a theory and then a lot of facts are brought in successfully or not all in service of the theory but for certain kinds of people it looks like oh here's a description of just how things are so they, they they hide the theory, make it look like, you know, just the facts, ma'am. You know, Jack Webb, Dragnet. The, yeah, they really hide the theory. Like, for instance, nothing in the book makes any sense, theoretically, unless you understand that they are coming at this from an underconsumptionist perspective. But they do not use the word underconsumption, and they don't talk about underconsumption for the entire book, as far as I can see. There are a couple references to problems of like realization but they're very like uh, veiled references how about over accumulation of the surplus yeah there's there's that kind of thing but even that's sort of very marginally it comes up only here and there it's not like brought to the forefront like here are the foundational concepts you need to understand what we're going to say in this book instead that's very kind of like parenthetical you it shows up here and there so if you didn't know to look for it and you didn't know what their actual thesis was about capitalism you wouldn't know the underconsumption or you know uh, a surplus absorption problem that those were the actual theoretical underpinnings of the whole tradition because it's not made explicit at all you have to just kind of read it into the text and then the text makes a lot more sense once you know that that's what their position is so it seems very deceptive to me, as if they're trying to bury the lead because they don't think it's defensible. If you want to write a critique of something, you have to summarize it, right? So in order for me to summarize it, I had to really reconstruct the argument, starting with the underconsumption and explaining how that leads to the various steps in their analysis, arriving at their metabolic rift theory. But it's not the way they present the argument. Okay, so bearing in mind that it is a reconstruction and that they're not really explicit. What is their theory as best as you can make out? All right. So I'll do my best here. So they believe there's a problem of chronic underconsumption in society, in capitalist society, due to the fact that capitalists produce more than workers can consume. That They believe that we're in a descending phase of monopoly capitalism or nowadays finance monopoly capitalism, as they call it. And it's a long historical period marked by chronic economic stagnation. And what they say is, quote, an overall thrust of the capital system shifted back toward profit upon expropriation. So expropriation is when you, right, you take something without giving back an equivalent. And they think that, like, the extraction of surplus value from workers is becoming less and less of a, a means of accumulation for capitalists because we're in this declining phase. And so capitalists need to look for means of expropriating value instead. Um, so, the, so there's a shift going on toward more and more types of expropriation. Which, by the way, makes no sense at all within their framework where there's this inherent chronic and growing problem of uh, absorbing surplus that's too large yeah. right right <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I know. it's, it's yeah. just a glaring contradiction yeah they go to town on this whole expropriation thing because they want to try to establish this argument that expropriation has always been central to capitalism and it always 
at the forefront, or at least a main a big part of what Marx wanted to talk about. I mean, I say parenthetically that I think the the whole book is it's very confusing whether it's like there are two parallel claims. One is that this is the way capitalism works, and the other is this is the way Marx thought about something. And those are two different things to establish. But the argumentation for Foster and Clark it runs together. Those two uh, threads, they kind of bleed into each other in confusing ways. So it's not, sometimes it seems like they're trying to establish the truth of something, but then they immediately just start like talking about how historically, how they think Marx developed an idea, right? So it's kind of like pivots from like, like just the logic of an argument to like a, a exegetical discussion. Right. That's a problem of the entire milieu that goes way beyond, you know, monthly review. All the Marxist economists and a lot of the Marxist academics are, are like that. I've always, like, hated that. And, I mean, the, the, the real source of that is when they say Marx, it's just a ritual invocation. And it's, you know, really, here's what I think. And then, well, it's not only me who, who thinks this way. It was also Mark. So, you know, you all shut up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll get to that soon. We'll get to that in this discussion because, wow, their way of sourcing ideas in Marx is really whacked out. But anyway, so there's this whole obsession with expropriation. And they talk about all these different ways that capitalism expropriated this and that. Um, kind of lumping all types of expropriation together, whether it be the enclosure acts, right, uh, primitive accumulation, or usury, or merchant capital, or, you know, David Harvey's accumulation by dispossession. Everything's kind of lumped together as one aspect of the way accumulation works is just stealing stuff from people. Anyway, what does this have to do with the environment, right? Well, Foster and Clark say that the relationship between humans and the environment under capitalism is one of expropriation, where people appropriate the resources of the earth without reciprocity, right? Reciprocity means you're giving back to something in the same proportion at which you take from it. Um, and they base this, they say, on things that Marx wrote about topsoil depletion. You can see in, if you're discussing like, agriculture that you take nutrients out of the soil when you grow crops you have to put nutrients back into the soil you put manure and fertilizer compost whatever you have to put your nutrients back in the soil and if if agriculture proceeds too aggressively and takes more nutrients out of the soil than it can return to the soil then you have topsoil depletion right and they point to things marx wrote about topsoil depletion and and capitalism and say this is marx's like mature ecological theory. And this is a type of expropriation like all the other expropriation we just talked about, merchant capital, usury, pr primitive accumulation. It, uh, it's all examples of capitalism taking without giving back. And then they say that this is how we understand ecological destruction in a capitalist society is it's a form of this expropriation, which is becoming increasingly part of capitalism in this descending monopoly stage where uh, traditional exploitation is not working for capitalism anymore so it needs to turn to all these types of expropriation and that's why environmental destruction is becoming uh, you know more and more urgent a problem you know they also make a second argument later in the book about the relationship of capitalism to ecological destruction that has nothing to do with this whole topsoil soil thing or about this metabolic rift 
stuff. It has to do with, in the era of monopoly capitalism, production becoming more wasteful because more and more production involves marketing. Uh, you know, firms have to spend more on the realization problem, trying to sell stuff to people. So they have to spend more on wasteful labor that doesn't really produce any use values, but it's just labor of selling stuff. I don't think that argument works by itself either and has no relationship to the other argument about the metabolic rift, but it's there in the, arc, in, the in the book, so I address it in the paper. Right. You, you've kind of introduced this uh, metabolic rift kind of abruptly, but am I, am, I, am I correct in understanding that this is the same thing as expropriation without reciprocity? Yes, right. You know, Marx uses the word metabolism sometimes in his books. He actually, and as I point out in the paper, he, he means very different things in different iterations of his use of the word metabolism. But according to them, metabolism is like this interchange between two things. So when they talk about metabolic rift, they're saying there's this metabolism between humans and the environment, and that if there isn't reciprocity in which humans are giving back on the same amount they take, then there's this rift. And that in a capitalist society, we've introduced this metabolic rift into our relationship with nature, where we're no longer behaving in our with this, recip this metabolic reciprocity, but we're taking more than we give back. And so, hence, ecological crisis. Okay, so you've laid out the theory. Uh, All right. And you say more clearly than, than yes, they I do. Yes, I did. Um, been, I, I, I believe I've said it way more clearly than they do it. Right. Um, and then you turn, in, in, in your review essay, you say, look, there's serious problems with what you've just summarized, uh, and they're both factual problems and theoretical problems. So uh, let's start with the factual problems in what Foster and Clark uh, put forward. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that if you identify stagnation with the tendency to destroy the environment, then it seems like economies that are stagnating should be more ecologically destructive than economies which are not stagnating. But that's the opposite of what we see in the real world. For, you know, I give two examples in this review. One is that carbon emissions fell by 7% in 2020. I think it's the first time ever that carbon emissions have declined. And it was because the economy shut down because of COVID lockdowns in 2020. And the g global GDP fell by $3 trillion. And that led to a decline in carbon emissions. So if capitalism were really in a declining phase, what we should expect is a lessening of the environmental pressures, not a heightening of Right, them. right, exactly. And the second example I point out is just the growth of the Chinese economy for the past few decades, which, of course, as everyone knows, has grown like gangbusters. In 2000, I point out in the paper, China contributed 13% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, by 2020, it was producing 30% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And during that same time, China's share of global GDP rose from 7% to 19%. So, in other words, as their economy grew, so did their contribution to 
global greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so it's pretty striking. I mean, what Mark Hurtwich says, he's a specialist in environmental economic issues. He traces a lot of the growth of greenhouse gases to the growth of the Chinese economy over the past couple of decades. Yeah. Okay, so those are the factual problems. Let's turn to the theoretical problems. And I have to say, I really like your review essay. I think it's just superb. Everybody should read it. We can't do justice to it in in this podcast. One of the things I appreciated most about it is the way you discussed theoretical problems, because you not only identified serious problems with what Foster and Clark were putting forward, you also explained why they went wrong. And that's really important, because anybody can make a mistake. You know, people make all kinds of mistakes. But you argued convincingly that their mistakes are not just, you know, isolated mistakes here and there. Something more fundamental is driving them to descend into error again and again and again. Uh, And I found your explanation completely persuasive. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about that? It seems glaringly obvious that rising GDP and greenhouse gas emissions are linked. And it's a fact that is widely discussed in the environmental literature. It's not like I'm bringing up some some not very well-known or discussed fact. I mean, this is like the entire post-growth, zero-growth, whatever you call it, literature is devoted to explaining and theorizing this one fact that GDP and greenhouse gas emissions are linked, right? So everyone knows this. And most rational observers conclude from that that what's good for capitalism you know, what, what grows the capitalist economy is bad for the environment. But Foster and Clark can't use that as their framework because they're tasked with this problem of trying to salvage and make relevant the theoretical traditions of the monthly review school, right? And the monthly review school doesn't believe that cap- capitalism is like dynamic and growing, They've thrown out all the things that you need to in order to explain the relationship between capitalist accumulation and the environment. They don't have those tools. So they don't want to talk about the competition between capitals that drives capital to destroy the earth and its search for profit because they think that we're in a monopoly phase where competition is like muted. Um, They don't want to talk about the rising organic composition of capital like we talk about in our uh, MHI statement on the, the environmental issue, because talking about the rising organic composition of capital is sort of ev- is evocative of the problems with underconsumptionism. They want to talk about the growth of the means of production at the expense of the means of consumption, which is a huge part of the of rising greenhouse gas emissions, a huge factor in the increase in greenhouse gas emissions. They can't talk about that because talking about that would bring into question their underconsumption theory. So they're really stuck. They don't have any of the tools that they need in order to explain the relationship of capitalism to the environment. And so they have to create this really complex, vague workaround that's like not coherent and only survives by being kind of descriptive and and vague. Right. And the, the relationship between the organic composition of capital and what's wrong with underconsumption crisis theory is, yeah, the workers don't buy back uh, all of the product. Well, you know, the capitalists and so forth, they, they get some of it, and the rest goes into expanding constant capital. 
you know, which causes the organic composition of capital to rise, and you got more uh, means of production at the expense of uh, articles of, of consumption. Which also means that capital's investing more and more in machinery and energy use. Right. And we often don't mention energy use, but in this context, it's, it's, it's crucial. Yeah. You're expanding the organic composition of capital and the means of production. You're consuming more energy. You're consuming more raw materials. You're producing more stuff. And that's like key to understanding the, the dynamism of capitalism and its relationship to the environment. And so without that, you're kind of, you're stuck and you have to talk about soil, topsoil depletion <laughs> and this sort of vague philosophical thing about a metabolic rift. Right. So what I think you're saying is because so many important aspects of the environmental crisis don't fit in with their theory and their predominant aim is to try to make what's going on fit in their theory and to defend their theory, they just ignore major dimensions of the environmental crisis. Yeah, that's what you are saying. So this idea of like reciprocity, taking and not giving back, idea of a metabolic rift, I could see that making sense as a way of characterizing topsoil degradation, which happens when like humans take nutrients out of the soil, they don't put enough compost to manure back in the, the field, and then you have the degradation of topsoil, right? And I could see it it working with other agricultural phenomena, maybe even like overfishing. But I don't think that works as a way of framing a lot of other ecological problems in capitalism, because a lot of ecological co problems don't happen within the context of like an industry where you take from the earth and then potentially give back to it, right? Like you take coal out of the ground, there's no putting coal back in the ground. You take oil out of the ground, you don't put it back in the ground. Greenhouse gas emissions are just a byproduct. They have nothing to do with giving, you don't like take, you know, take oxygen out of the air and then not give enough oxygen back. That doesn't happen in, in production. Yeah, but I mean, oil and coal are not important industries. I mean, you know, come on, Brendan. Right. And greenhouse gas emissions, that's such a marginal concern to, yeah. to <laughs> us right now as ecologists, right? I mean, I, as I point out, like in the paper, capitalist firms commonly pollute resources they don't use at all, like an oil spill, right? There's nothing about reciprocity there. You just spilled a bunch of oil. Yeah, you give and, and you, you just give. You yeah, give you, to the water what yeah, it doesn't yeah. need. Yeah. It just doesn't map on. I, I, and that was one of the most confusing things to me, honestly, starting the book. I was like, what is this thing they're talking about? Met metabolism and reciprocity. How does this explain greenhouse gas emissions? And I really I just thought I was missing something. So I kept rereading the sections. And then finally I said, you know what? It doesn't. It just They're just hoping people conceive it so abstractly that they just think like, oh, we're taking from the earth and not respecting the earth or something. But it doesn't really map on to actually looking concretely at different types of ecological destruction and how, how what causes them. Do, do they suggest that their stuff does yes. account is, for greenhouse gas emissions? No, they just don't. They, I mean, honestly, greenhouse gas emissions don't aren't a major topic in the book. It's all dealt with in a high level of abstraction. But we're supposed to be getting a, a theory of ecological crisis that explains the relationship of capital to the environment, right? It's not just that they're writing a book on topsoil. But I don't, you know, as I point in the paper, I don't even think that topsoil depletion is the main 
problem for agri- agricultural crisis. I mean, there have been headlines about topsoil soil depletion in recent years, but I've also read some articles questioning those claims and saying that they might not be really based on real scientific evidence. So I don't even know if topsoil depletion is like a big issue right now. I'm kind of agnostic on that in terms of my research, but I do know that the the biggest issue for agriculture is climate change. So even within the narrow realm of saying, well, okay, well, maybe they have a theory that explains like problems in agriculture, you know, crisis. I don't think their theory really is particularly relevant to explaining the real problems we have to today with agricultural crisis and food production. Yeah, it's just really like scary to imagine what's going to happen with the, the, the rising sea levels to agriculture and so forth. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So they've got a theory or characterization or something 
And you've written about this for uh, the, the MHI uh, statement on capitalism and the ecological crisis. Can you do a comparison and contrast? What are the main differences between what Foster and Clark are saying and Marxist humanism is saying? What MHI's position does is go straight to Marx's discussion of centralization and concentration of capital in Volume 1 of Capital and talks about competition between capitals, how that compels capitalists to accumulate endlessly to produce for production's sake, to raise the organic composition of capital like we discussed and expand the size of the means of production. And this is all done not to produce for social good, but just for its own sake. It's a mindless process that just happens for its own purposes of expansion. And that expansion is necessarily destructive of the environment. It happens without any consideration of the the environment. And that's one of the reasons we see like a very clear relationship between greenhouse gas emissions and GDP growth is because there's just, as capitalism expands, it pollutes more, like almost one to one. So that's like the essence of what we're doing. And Foster and Clark, they do not want to talk about competition between capitals the expansion of the means of production, uh, the rise of organic composition of capital. So they want to talk about stagnation and decline and say that ecological destruction is some sort of uh, result of this declining state of capitalism where everything is like robbery and expropriation because everything's broken down and it's just all like gangsterism and and, uh, cheating and stuff. Gangsterism and cheating. I'm I'm at a, I'm at a loss. It's so well. Maybe I'm ridiculous. exaggerating a little bit, but you know this whole no. You're 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 really this not. This whole thing about because... expropriation is about like well, capital. You know, everything is like just done by like stealing and robbery nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 there. They, they just think the robbery is like financial robbery or imperialist robbery or that's kind of what they're saying. It's just the logic of the system is broken down to just all this decadence and pillaging of the earth. It's defining the the mode of production right now they're always talking about the declining phase of capitalism right whatever that means well i mean that's 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 an old staple of the underconsumptionist view because the underconsumptionist yeah. view actually is totally incapable of understanding capitalist growth you know you can't have internal growth uh, and so you've got to plunder the, the outside world and when you're talking about the global economic crisis there's nothing outside that yeah, yeah. probably they've had this problem before you know john Bellamy foster was born anyway you've alluded a couple of times to their method of handling marx's texts yeah as i began with they claim to be working within the tradition of marx and they claim that their book is an elaboration of marx's own mature ecological critique in their words and they claim that their metabolic rift theory is grounded in Marx's famous theory of metabolic rift. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I didn't know Marx had a famous or even a not famous theory of yeah, metabolic rift. I, <laughs> in any case, you investigated these claims in some detail. Yeah. What, what is it that you found? Well, I did this crazy thing where I looked at all the footnotes and I just looked them up. I don't know if other people do this. I happen to have all the books that they are referencing by Marx on my shelf uh, or in PDF format, one of the two. And so I was able to just go through the footnotes because uh, I was curious. I was like, what is this Marx, Marxist mature ecological critique they keep referring to? 
And what is this metabolic rift? First of all, they admit that Marx never used the term metabolic rift, but they claim that it's like a shorthand for explaining a theory that he did have. So I went through, and in the paper, I list a few of these instances. And I think we'll have to write another paper at some point where I just go through all of their footnotes, because I think that would be even more damning, just kind of see that there's very little of anything there. But I go through some of the citations and show what is actually in the passages by Marx, and it was shocking to me. I was not expecting it to be so clearly fraudulent, but in a lot of these citations, there is no relationship between what they claim Marx is saying and what's in his text. A lot of it honestly looks to me like they had a digital copy of Marx and Engels' complete works, and they just looked for the word metabolism, did an auto search for metabolism, and then just randomly inserted those pages into the footnotes. So can I give you an example or two? And people oh, yeah, see what we're talking do. about. Please do. All right. Yeah, we, I mean, we don't want any unsubstantiated assertions yeah. about fraudulent behavior on yeah. the part of Foster and Clark. You know, we want substantiated assertions. Yeah. You know, people can read the paper and see more of them. And I know reading out quotes is tedious in a podcast. So I'll get to some of the meatier ones here. Here's a quote. They say, Marx's analysis of the social metabolism was, was, was this never conceptually divorced from what he called, quote, the universal metabolism of nature, end quote, of which the human social metabolism was simply a part. So they tell us that we can go to two passages in the Grandrissa and one in um, 1861 economic manuscript to see what this universal metabolism of nature is, right? The first quote's from the Grandrissa and it's very clear from this quote that the universal metabolism of nature that Marx is referring to is like chemical decomposition of commodities. He's saying when commodities lose their use value, they lose their value. And one of the ways they can lose their use value is uh, the chemical process of like decomposition. So it's not an analogy or a metaphor. N Right. He's just using the word metabolism is, I don't know. I mean, this is like a translation of a German text. So I don't know what the German word is, but whoever decided to use the word metabolism for this instance has nothing to do with anything they're talking about. It's like he's just talking about like rust. So so rust would be like a machine that just sits around, isn't used in production. It just rusts yeah. and it uses its use value or usefulness. And as a result, it loses yeah. its value. The quote says, they lose their value as use values and are dissolved by the simple metabolism of nature that if they are not actually used. That's the quote from page 271 right. of the Penguin Grandrissus. Yeah, it, so it sounds like it's a way of talking about oxidization. Yeah, so he's not yeah. saying that there's some like metabolism between humans and nature where we're like giving and taking reciprocally. It's just, you know, a reference to chemical breakdown. Right, so it has nothing to do with human beings and the natural environment it has to do with capitalism and the operation of chemical processes how they affect yeah. that yeah, the, yeah. okay so it has nothing to do with the context that foster and clark are saying is yeah. the context it, there's no relationship right there's zero relationship. <laughs> zero relationship okay again with their same quote of the economic manuscripts of 1861 to 63 marx writes He's discussing a machine that's not employed in production. And he writes, quote, 
Apart from this, if it falls victim to consumption by elemental forces, to the universal metabolism of nature, iron rusts, wood rots, end quote. So again, he's just saying, when he says universal metabolism of nature, he means things rusting or rotting. There's nothing about a, a theory of the relationship of human activity to, to the environment at all. Right. No reciprocity we take, we give, none of that. None of that. All, the only th similar thing is that he uses the word metabolism and nature in the same sentence. That's the only similarity. Right. So, although you don't know the actual procedures they used to generate their citations, what we have as a result <laughs> in, in the book is fully consistent with this hypothesis that they did a search of a big electronic text and just yeah. pulled out the word metabolism and <laughs> stuck it into yeah. a footnote wherever they could. Here's another one that just blew my mind. The, the quote starts quoting Marx and then ends with them finishing his sentence for him. So, quote, the chemical process regulated by labor, Marx wrote, and then they continue with Marx, has everywhere consisted of an exchange of natural equivalents, end quote. And now here's Foster Clark finishing the quote, whose violation meant the expropriation of nature with disastrous consequences. So according to them, when I go to the citation, I'm going to see Marx talking about an exchange of natural equivalents whose violation means the expropriation of nature with disastrous consequences. So let's go to where Marx is talking about exchange of natural equivalents. Oh, it's in a passage in the Grandrissa. And he says, he's talking about the manufacture of linen or something. And he says, he says, quote, when cotton becomes yarn, yarn becomes fabric, fabric becomes printed, etc. or dyed fabric, and this becomes, say, a garment. Then the substance of cotton has preserved itself in all these forms. Parenthetically, the chemical process regulated by labor has everywhere consisted of an exchange of natural equivalents, end quote. So all he's talking about here, this exchange of natural equivalents, means that there's one material, cotton, that's being preserved as it changes form. It's the cotton's turning to yarn, and that's an ex like a, an exchange of natural equivalents. And the yarn becomes, you know, dyed and becomes a garment. And the material thing is changing forms, but it's just like an exchange of natural equivalents, and it's still the same thing. In the end, it's still a cotton garment. It's, yeah, yeah. It's still, yeah. That's all he's saying. It has nothing to do with expropriating nature or disastrous consequences anywhere in this section of the Grand Rissa. Yeah, it has nothing to do with an exchange between human beings and nature. Right. It has to do with the change in form of cotton from raw cotton into you know finished cotton yeah shirt or whatever yeah okay. and and you know i'm not saying anything that's like controversial in the interpretation of this text right this is real like basic very clear what he's saying here it's nothing deep or it, yeah read 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 the text one more time of marx yeah yeah so we see the, we see okay. the, now we understand the right. issue better when yeah. cotton becomes yarn yarn becomes fabric Fabric becomes printed, etc., or dyed, etc., fabric, and this becomes, say, a garment. Then, the substance of cotton has preserved itself in all these forms. And then Marx says, in parentheses, the chemical process, regulated by labor, has everywhere consisted of an exchange of natural equivalents. Ah, 
Okay, so 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 he's making an analogy between what happens to cotton. It changes its form, and when you have production, you know, uh, affect uh, chemicals, you know, they, they they'll change their form. Sure. Yeah. But they'll they'll still have the same chemical composition. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the simple the simplest thing is boiling. You know. Yeah, and that's right. what all he means by exchange of natural equivalents. There's nothing yeah, to yeah, do yeah. with what they're talking about at all. No, I, I don't see any relationship whatsoever. And that's just like sampling of what they're doing and their citation of Marx. So there's just no integrity at all to the what they're doing. I, I can't, I'm, I'm like dumbfounded that this is the way that these guys who are, I mean, John Bellamy Foster is like a huge intellectual, he's like a figurehead of the monthly review school. And he's written lots of stuff on this so-called metabolic rift theory. And this is how he backs up his claim that this is in Marx. I mean, it's it's not even like a you, you can't even say, OK, well, I could see the interpretation. It's just completely fabricated. Right. These are serious charges. And certainly if Foster and or Clark are able yeah. to successfully uh, defend themselves, I would have to say, OK, Brendan's wrong, but I, I would welcome them. You know, I'm sure you would as well on, on onto the podcast to discuss this. These these are serious charges, but behavior that you're indicating and you're providing at least a very strong prima facie case for it. At least a yeah. very strong prima facie case for it. You know, this the charges are serious, but the behavior is is equally serious. At least to me. But let me play devil's advocate. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are going to be listening to this, and their attitude will be something like the following: Well. Look, at the end of the day, you and Foster and Clark, you all end up in the same place. You say that capitalism and environmental destruction are intertwined and necessarily intertwined. They say the same thing. You say we have to get rid of capitalism. They say the same thing. Isn't that good enough? Why do you have to be so hostile to them? You know, in spite of everything you say, lots of people seem to find their kind of argumentation appealing. They don't need that kind of methodical theory that you are advocating here. And so the kind of stuff they do helps to build the left. And they have command of a lot more resources than you do. So why don't you collaborate with them like so many other people do, even though they might not accept all of monthly review ideology? Aren't you harming the left by being sectarian and dogmatic? So how would you respond to that? Yeah, well, I tried to anticipate that at the beginning of the paper because I figured people would be thinking exactly that kind of thing. So what I try to argue at the uh, the very beginning of the paper is to talk about what the primary task for eco-socialists is or Marxists who want to talk about the environment. That's that we, you know, the, the job of theory is to arrive at truth. It's not to just pander to people or to sell newspapers or recruit cadre by by any means possible and if we're our goal is to arrive at truth you could have the right conclusion but if your argumentation to arrive at that truth is bad argumentation then you haven't really done the job of the theory the theory actually has to to prove its conclusions it can't just have a conclusion that we like and backed up by nonsense that might work for parts of the left. But if you're going to argue that we need to overthrow the capitalist mode of production to save the planet from ecological crisis, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do to a lot of people who need to be convinced. And not everyone is just a 
monthly review fanboy who's going to agree with whatever you print. There are people on the other side who are smart and know how to read books and make logical arguments. And you have to be able to engage with those people and prove your position, right? I mean, I think some of this monthly review stuff comes from a certain lack of having to actually engage with critics and have be responsible for what they print so they can kind of say whatever they want they don't have there are no consequences yeah that that is that is for sure i mean i i i know a very uh, well-known very respected marxian researcher economist they thought that he was on their side they helped him in all kinds of ways and were very you know nice and collaborative and the moment they they realized that like he didn't share their theory and he was going to speak out they cut him off i know somebody was a graduate student the same thing happened to them they have a practice of just not engaging and so it's kind of like vladimir putin you you try for to squelch all criticism you isolate yourself and you become really vulnerable and you don't receive the feedback that you need to correct but i'll tell you i mean going way way back critics have always said that these people are playing fast and loose with the truth I've been trying to find, and it's behind a, a paywall, and I can't find it. But uh, back in 1984, I think it was, Joanne Barkin wrote a review of Monopoly Capital, which by that point, I think it was 84, it was published in 66, so it was already not a new book. But she was reflecting on what was that milieu 18 years ago that had everybody waving around this book like this is the answer. And then she says, you know, look, Sweezy's not a stupid guy. He has to know that what he's saying in this book is untrue. You know, this was published in the pages of Dissent, so it, it, it's not like this is the first time that, that, it, that it's being said. You're, fam- you're what well, I think of as famous, but your monthly failure to review paper from 15 years ago or so. Yeah. Where you just called them out for blatant mathematical errors. Right, and that, right? And that was and a they're... follow-up to more misused wage data from monthly review, the over-accumulation of a surplus of errors, right? Right. right. Uh, yeah. And, and they just don't have to respond or publish any retractions, even if they're like... Right. But you got to the essential issue here. I mean, those people who care about truth are going to be repelled by this stuff. I'm not so sanguine that the people on the other side care that much about truth. I mean, you know what, Trumpites? <laughs> No, the other side could be like other environmentalists, right, who believe in right. reform, like reformists, like Green New Deal people right. or the post-growth people. Sure. There are lots of people who are in the ecological movement, the environmental movement, who aren't don't think you have to overthrow capitalism. Overthrowing capitalism isn't on the agenda for most environmentalists, right? right? Well, some of those people right. are very honest and passionate and smart people who know how to read a book and know if it's full of shit or not. Yeah, I wouldn't see a book like this convincing any of those people that they need to become anti-capitalist. Right. And I mean, the, the even bigger problem to my mind is, let's say that those folks, the monthly review types and the that whole milieu were to get power and they would say, OK, well, we, we've gotten rid of the looters, you know, and we're going to re- we're going to return nutrients to the soil. You know, and let's get rid of this chronic stagnation, run the economies at full steam. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. we're really going to get rid of our environmental problems that way. Yeah, yeah, problem solved. We, we're getting rid of the monopoly, so we're going to have this unfettered competition. If you care about actually making things better, instead of, like, gaining an audience or whatever, if you care to solve problems, issues of truth become paramount. Because you got to truly solve them instead of fakely solve them.
you know, what's always in my head is this thing that C.L.R. James, I'm not always a fan of C.L.R. James, but he wrote something way back in the 1930s. I may have mentioned this on the podcast, maybe not. In any case, I'll say it again. You know, he was in the Trotskyist movement at the time. This was before World War II. You know, the Hitler-Stalin Pact. Anyway, the, the Trotskyists were, were, were united at the time. He's writing in the New International or, or some Trotskyist publication. He says, you know, in our movement, in the Trotskyist movement, it's very common for people to say, you know, the Stalinists don't educate their members. They don't care about the education of their members. And he says that's entirely false. He says the, the Stalinists do a great job of educating their members for what they want from their members. And what the, the Communist Party wants from its members is the ability to be agile and to turn on a dime. When the line changes, you change with it. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's got to be something similar with the, the monthly review crowd. They don't want to, as we were saying, engage with criticism. What they want are people who will swallow a line and, you know, identify with them. And it's a way of, I think, perhaps even testing them. Like, oh God, if we're going to have somebody here who's going to look up footnotes, that's not the kind of person we want. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.